Hi, everybody. Today we have Pete Kazanji. Uh, really excited to have Pete on the show today. Uh, for those of you who don't know him by name, he's the founder of uh, Modern Sales, uh, the online group of 10,000 plus sales professionals uh, that asks each other questions and answer their questions. And it's a really good group to be part of. If you're not familiar with it, go find it, Modern Sales. Uh, but he's also been a multi-time founder and has sold off uh, one of his companies. He's an advisor to different companies. He He's an author and really, really insightful guy, really knows his stuff, and we're really excited to speak to him today. And before we get started, I'd like to, to tell you about startup sales and what we're doing. Uh, if you're an early stage startup and you need help building out your sales processes, whether that's inbound or outbound sales processes, then we could come in and help you with that. We could help you in building the processes itself, writing the content for emails, uh, putting together your outbound strategy and the infrastructure around that, and building and training the team to implement everything once it gets up and running. So if you want more information on that, you can find out at startupsales.io or you could email me at adam at startupsales.io. I really hope you enjoy this episode with Pete and you learn a lot from it. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. All right, Pete, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So many people know uh, who you are, but for those that don't, I mean, you've you've been a multi multiple time founder uh, and a soon to be published author, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, had a founder of several of two different uh, groups that help uh, different other founders and salespeople, modern sales pros and modern SaaS. Uh, my first question is, is before you introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about yourself is where do you find the time for all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, maybe I don't sleep as much as, as I should. And uh, a lot of things kind of get pushed to the evenings and the weekends, but uh, you know, there's opportunities for leverage here and there. Okay. All right. So uh, give us a rundown on, on who, who you are. Sure thing. Um, my name is Pete Kazanji. I'm an early stage entrepreneur and go-to-market expert. Um, my my current company is uh, Atrium. It's a sales performance analytics software company, but um, that's just my most recent company. My previous software company was a recruiting software company called TalentBin. That's really where I went from being a product marketing, product uh, management generalist founder to being a uh, an early stage go-to-market expert um, because at, at TalentBin, I was went from being a founder to our first sales rep, then our first sales manager, and then our you know our functioning VP of sales, and then we were eventually acquired by Monster Worldwide, where I was responsible for um, new product sales 
and in a you know multi hundred person sales organization as opposed to the uh, couple dozen <laughs> person sales organization from Talent Bin. Uh, so that was a big learning experience there. Uh, I wrote a book on sales for founders, kind of encapsulating all my experience from that transition from being a you know a general business generalist founder to uh, a go-to-market leader just because at the time there really was no documentation on it. And it was really frustrating that I was having to make things up from scratch. Uh, that's called founding sales, the friends and family copy, Adam will link in the show notes. Um, but yeah. And the other thing I, I do is I run the nation's largest, um, uh, sales operations, sales leadership, sales enablement community, uh, called modern sales. It's a peer education community that involves, uh, has an online community focused around questions and answers uh, of, you know, sales operations, sales leadership, revenue focused founders who they all kind of have the same problems and like different people have solved other people's, you know, problems. And so if you just connect them together, people can ask questions, other people can answer it. We also do events in dozens of cities uh, worldwide. So those are the things that um, we do, but kind of my biggest thing right now is the sales performance analytics software company, uh, Atrium, that's why I spend most of my time on, uh, followed by modern sales and then doing cool podcasts like this. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I have to tell for those that don't know modern sales, it's a fantastic group and we're, there's a lot of insight and you could always get all your questions answered. And I know you do like most groups have a big problem with, uh, people coming in and plugging themselves. And I know, uh, from personal experience, that you run a very tight ship there. I, I tried to look for guests there and, and you, you blocked my post. <laughs> yeah. So it, I mean, it, I recommend it just, the group. Yeah. It's just, it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of, it doesn't feel nice to have to do it, but it's one of those things where you have to make sure that you don't end up with tragedy of the commons where obviously people would love to utilize the the attention of 10,000 sales operations, sales enablement, sales leadership folks in order to plug their product or what have you. But then if we allowed that, then everyone would do it. And then people would stop paying attention in order to answer questions for other folks. So that's why we're very narrowly focused on, you know, asking problems, people answering those, et cetera, et cetera. And then the same things kind of happen at the events. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not the funnest thing in the world to be like the, the police on that front, but <laughs> people, people really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. That's why you have such a good, uh, good group. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about, uh, some of the things that you've learned from the group. What are the most common problems that, and questions that people are coming up with there? Man. I mean, I think it's not that there's like a top three or something. It, it's more that there is, there's like a topic taxonomy. If you think about it, that are, just like the problems that people will run into and that, and those are kind of different predicated on the stage of organization that an organization or that a go to market is uh, the stage of go to market that an organization is at. Actually, I think one of the things we'll link to in the show notes is a presentation that I do at conferences on sales maturity stages. Okay. But I think, you know, earliest stage people are, are asking questions about, you know, product market fit. How do you know that you have it? Um, how do you know from a B2B standpoint, like if, if people are giving you money in exchange for your product, is that sufficient? Um, 
you know, those kind of early stages of like, do we know the problem we're solving? Well, do we, are we actually solving it in a way that we can prove it? And will our people like, can we get people to give us money? That's kind of the earliest stages. Then as people progress, then to scaling that up, it's, you know, how do I, how do I get someone who's not the founder to sell this thing? How do I train them? How do, or how do I hire them? How do I train them? How do I fill their pipeline? How do I fill their calendar? Um, what are the materials that they need? Um, how are they, you know, how are they different than the materials that maybe I got away with as the founder and then all the way up to like, you know, later stage stuff where now you're scaling to like dozens and dozens of sales reps. And at that point, it's more about like, you know, synchronicity and workflows and automation and analytics. I mean, actually analytics at the earlier stages as well, but you know, fancier questions, I guess. I mean, they're all obviously very important questions because if you don't, if you don't solve, if you don't solve the first one, you never get to stage two. And if you don't solve stage two, you never get to stage three. Um, so it just, it just kind of comes down to that in different stages of organization, different stages of go to market, there are different topics that people have to contend with. Um, and the good news is, is that like largely these problems have been solved by, by other people. And that's one of the things that makes modern sales, which I think we'll link to um, an overview deck of modern sales in the show notes. Um, one of the things that makes modern sales very powerful is that you can just connect these people together through questions and answers and through offline events. And like magically, now you you get to steal somebody else's answer, yeah. which is really helpful because they just, you know, or steal it and then like iterate it yeah. um, rather than having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Do you find that um, some of these companies are focusing on the wrong things in your, from your experience? Yeah. You know, yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> of, of course, like we all, we all screw things up. Um, and I think the, the kind of the, the root cause of a screw up is kind of different. I think um, probably historically the biggest root cause of screw ups at the earliest stage, because there's like, there's different common failure modes at those different stages, right? At the earliest stage, probably the most common failure mode is just like not being willing to embrace go to market and care about it as a founder. Um, I think that historically there's been a lot of confusion and this kind of goes to why I wrote my book. Um, I think there's, if you think about where sales people come from historically, it's, it's you learn through apprenticeship, right? There, there aren't that many like, you know, sales, um, university programs or what have you. And so what if you, what you end up with if you, is if you have like, you know, 28 year old, 30 year old, 40 year old founders who come out of technology or consulting or product or what have you, um, you know, they don't know how to do sales and, and there hasn't been documentation historically. So I think there historically was a little bit of like confusion and antipathy there. And so people would be like, Oh, okay, we're not going to do sales because I don't know how to do it. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to say that we don't need it as opposed to saying like, actually we do need it. I just need to learn it. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's like a fair, that that's kind of the earliest failure mode. And then as you get larger, there's different failure modes. There's, you know, the commonest one there of course is like premature scale, getting out ahead of your skis and kind of like Xenofitzing yourself. Um, and you know, scaling up a unit economic negative go to market or hiring a bunch of account executives before you've actually proven that you, that you have a repeatable sales motion or even kind of like delegating the creation of a repeatable sales motion to somebody who's not a business founder. That's a really dangerous pattern as well. Um, 
I mean, these are very common um, failure patterns. And so to the extent that you can have people, one way of solving this is through documentation and education through things like my book and the conferences and what have you. Another way of solving this is just through like peer interaction such that people can kind of see what they should be thinking about. Um, But yeah, there's, I mean, yes, there are common failure modes. Um, The good news is they're not like magic. They are surmountable. You just have to admit that you have a problem and then commit resources to solving them. Yeah. All right. And you said like one of the biggest problems is, I mean, you said a lot lot of, there's a lot of common problems there, (laughs) but one of the, one of them is knowing when to scale or premature scaling is the problem. Sure. How, how do you know when to scale? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was having a a really early phone call with a gentleman this morning kind of on this topic. Um, and I think, uh, again, in that deck that we're going to link in the, um, in the show notes on, uh, founder led selling maturity stages, like, you know, that you're ready to, so first of all, people use the word scale and they kind of don't know what it means. Like, Oh, I'm going to scale. Like, what does that actually mean? Um, and so at least in B2B sales, and I'm going to speak to this from the standpoint of like B2B sales where there is, or B2B, um, software, I mean, it can be hardware too, but B2B, uh, startup where there is a direct sales motion where like a, a sales rep has a conversation with a prospect either in person or digitally like this in order to drive to a transaction. Um, that's the kind of context that we're going to use here. So in those scenarios, the most important thing is before you go, like the way the scale happens is just by adding more of those sales reps. It's kind of like the simplest way of, of thinking about it. There's like, whereas if you have something like, you know, a Dropbox or back in the day, like something like a Dropbox or a Zapier or what have you, where it's like self-service or, you know, early stage Clearbit or what have you, where literally all you have to do is like pour more Facebook AdWords, Facebook ads or Google AdWords or whatever, and it it self-serves its way up. That's different. That's a different type of scaling that we're not going to talk about. So if, if we're talking about the scaling that, that we're talking about, really what that is, is just adding incremental sales reps who are doing those sales behaviors and then making sure that they're unit economic positive. And so what that means is like you have, you know, you're adding sales reps who are productive units of revenue production. And they're just like, you know, just think of them like as servers, right? <laughs> as little right? drones. <laughs> they're, just like, they're just like servers, right? Like, yeah. you know, here's one, like, and each one, when you, what you want is like it tossing out like $50,000 of bookings per month. And so then if you then, so if that's the mental model that you should be using, and we talk, I talk about that in that, in that deck, um, then what you want to know is that you have a unit example of a successful sales rep who, who can be scaled, who ought to be scaled. And so usually the, the very, very, very first example of that is the founder, um, themselves where what you want to be able to see is that, okay, cool. I can reliably take, you know, a customer engagement, which is the first meeting, um, and then progress that along to an eventual close of, of business. And then that customer is onboarded and then they get utility. That's actually very important. Like you, you can sell snow to Eskimos, so to speak. But then if they're like, wow, actually, why did I buy that from that sales rep? I have snow everywhere. That's actually not a, that's not a scalable model. You actually need to see that the the user is getting, the customer is getting utility. And, and usually utility is signified by high utilization, 
expansion of consumption, referral, NPS, you know, obviously renewal eventually, but unfortunately renewals can be a year later. Yeah. And so, you know, it takes time precisely. It takes time. So you want to see that they're getting utility. So if that's happening and you can reliably, you know, engage a customer, uh, or, you know, engage a a unit customer and then transact with them, uh, at a, 20%, 20%, like 15, 20, 25% rate, like from a win rate standpoint. Um, and then moreover, you, you've, in, you have a, a way of getting more of those opportunities onto your plate. And so essentially with that initial unit, that initial like server or like unit of production or assembly line, whatever metaphor you want to use is now fully loaded. Like, okay, they're having 15 customer facing meetings a week. Okay. That's the point at which you can then abstract out. And so then that's quote unquote scaling. So you know that you are ready to scale when you have a win rate that is reliable at a average sale price that can allow you to pay a human, um, in order to engage in those sales behaviors and then have 70%, you know, 80% or 20% contribution margin on top of the cost of that human. So say you have like, let's use San Francisco as an example. I know you have an international audience, but like, Hey, I'm in San Francisco. So we're going to talk about it. <laughs> so suck it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry for like the San Francisco centric, um, vision of the world. But like, say you have an account executive who costs $150,000, um, a year or sorry, like you're paying a $75,000 base and a $75,000, um, variable component to, okay. So at success, they're going to be costing you $150,000 a year, you would want to see them doing, um, like 750 K. So five times that 750 K in bookings a year, because they take the 150 K and then the rest of it has to go to pay for, I mean, in San Francisco, right? Like rent <laughs> and in like, and, and, uh, servers and engineers and, and what have you. So importantly, the, like are our win rates legit? are our average sale prices legit such that when we model that unit economic rep human, um, they, they like, they will be a a productive revenue generator. Whereas if instead your win rates are 5% and your ASP is so small that even having 15 customer facing meetings a week, that rep will ultimately only be able to close $300,000. Well, shoot. (laughs) <laughs> that's like, that's not going to, we're not going to have enough contribution margin there. So instead, maybe what we need to think about is, can we raise prices? Can we get our win rates? Like, which is the lever that we need to play with? So in that case, it's like, if it's only a 5% win rate, that's pretty crappy. Okay. But if we can get that to 20 or 25% with better messaging or a better product, then we might be able to get things better. Or if your win rate's already at 25%, but you're only transacting at like a thousand dollars per account, Mm, that's really like, that's a small transaction. Can you get more value out of those accounts? Or if you can't like, so for instance, if you're selling loyalty services to SMBs or, or what have you, maybe you need to figure out how to have a, you know, a lower touch transaction model, or you just move that sales rep to, you know, Denver or Salt Lake city or, um, or film, <laughs> film the blank. I mean, the, yeah. there are, there are wildly successful companies who have, who have done this. Like my buddy is the CEO of a company called Thanks. They make really amazing, um, loyalty solutions for 
um, for restaurants. And so they prototyped their go-to-market here in San Francisco, but now they've scaled up their, um, their sales organization in Denver because, you know, costs are 40% cheaper, but, and so they can get that unit economic positivity from those reps there anyway. So the, the whole point is, is like the metaphor is, do you have a, a single unit of production that, that you want to scale? One, you should figure that out. And then, then, then you're like, okay, now is the process by which we can start to scale that up. And of course, you don't want to then say like, oh, okay, I have this one founder who's successfully doing this. Let's hire 10 account executives. Instead, it's here's this one founder who's doing this. Great. Now maybe we should hire two salespeople and see if we can get those two operating at the same level of efficiency as this. Okay, we did. Maybe now we go to six. Yeah. Right. Versus if you go and hire 10 straight out the gate and all of a sudden you realize, oh, actually it was something magical about what the founder was doing or that early stage um, sales leader was doing. And actually we can't replicate that. Well, shoot. Now you've got 10 people who are costing you $6,000 or $10,000 or whatever, fill in the blank a month and not actually delivering money to you. Ugh. Right. And so that, that's like, you just brought that up because, uh, yeah. I was going to say like to your, you make it sound so easy. Like, Oh, just buy a new server. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It's uh take it slow, add, add slowly and see if it's repeatable by other people. Cause yes, you know, the founder has a different edge than the first salesperson. The first salesperson has a different edge and a, a different kind of personality than hiring the 10th person. Yeah, that is totally true. But, um, yes, exactly. Like you should always, things always get more, more inefficient over time, right? Like your earliest stage, like the early, no one's going to know the product as good as the founder should, right? Now they may not be a very great, good salesperson. Like my joke about myself, and it's actually not a joke. It's true. Like I'm not a very, I'm not a very good sales rep. I'm like a B minus, right? (laughs) Uh, But I have like really, really, really good, um, I have really good product expertise and market expertise when it comes to sales operations and sales analytics and sales strategy and things like, I know that better than any sales rep is going to know that is my like pipeline management and closing behavior as, as good as some of those other folks. Eh, No, (laughs) right. So, but you're never going to have the same level of product and, and subject matter expertise in, in initial sales reps as you will in the founder. Right. But the good news is, is like their focus on like all they're doing is pipeline management. All they're doing, like their calendar is only full of, of customer meetings that will help make up for that. But then with the, like, you know, the 10th rep or the 20th rep or what have you, what you're going to start running into is like lead quality, lead quality is going to start declining and, and so on and so forth. So the good news is this is why it's important when you start out to have good unit economics, because the unit economics are only going to erode over, over time. Yeah. So with good unit economics, I mean, you, you were saying that uh, a sales rep should be getting five, five, five times on what their OTE is. Uh, I was just, uh, I just uh, did it, hosted a panel here with uh, Viola uh, Ventures, if you know them. Okay. And they're saying that it should be about 10 times on the OTE. 10 times on the base and five times on the OTE. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a rule of thumb. So, um, actually, so there's this gentleman who runs sales, uh, sales strategy and, um, 
And uh, he's the general manager of, of Sales Lofts uh, New York office. Gentleman's name is Jeremy Donovan. He used to be the CMO at Gartner. And he's kind of like, he's, he's, he's the smartest sales strategy person I know. Um, yeah. And so he like constantly, he'll just like bust out these amazing answers on MSP frequently. And so one of the things that he always kind of brings up is like, yeah, you know, that's a rule of thumb, five X, a 20% cost of sale, which is essentially what we're describing right there is kind of the rule of thumb. Now, if you have other components of your cost of sale, like let's imagine that you have one, like your model, your lead gen model is one SDR to two account executives. And then like one SE for three account executives. Like I work in SaaS land, so we don't really need sales engineers, but I'm sure that there's people who are listening that like deal with data center stuff and all sorts of craziness. What you need to do is like, think of that as like a revenue pod, if you will. Right. So like, you know, one SDR to two account executives. And I forget what I said. The ratio was on one, actually, to, one to two and three. Let's, yeah. let's make it four. <laughs> let's make it four for the SE for the sake of like making the, the math easy. So like, you know, one SDR, two AEs, and then, um, and then like half a, half a sales engineer, you need to take all of that salary expense. Right. And say, okay, cool. All of that salary expense has to be 20% of the bookings that those two AEs are going to generate. So, you know, you can't have a 20% cost of sales. And this is where, I mean, early on, you can be maybe more aggressive, have a 25% or a 30% cost of sale because you're just trying to, you know, get the logos and you, you have a hypothesis about like a longer LTV or what have you. Um, and it's, it is a rule of thumb. And, and just the reality is, is that some, some markets just kind of suck and they're hard to get into Right. And so like your cost of sales is going to have to be higher, but then that maybe what that actually means is that your pricing has to be higher. I mean, this is one of the things that I've learned as a, as a entrepreneur over time is that often, oftentimes pricing is like predicated on like on the go to market motion. Like, and one of the things that you mean, like, um, I'll, I'll use a really good example of this. So, um, a good, good buddy of mine is the former VP of sales at, um, M particle. Right. So M particles, a customer data platform, and, um, they, they sell into CMOs, but then also like technology leader, like VPs of engineering and what have you. And they have this, like this very like involved three-legged sale that involves like marketing plus product plus engineering, um, and what have you. So like, it's a, it's a very large lift to get, um, to get going. And then also the way that you sell into these these like large consumer brand CMOs is you kind of have to have relationships it just kind of is what it is, right? You can't just buy Google AdWords. Um, so what ends up happening is their, their go to market motion involves these very expensive outside sales directors, um, that have high OTEs and are very relationship driven plus, but those people are not super technical necessarily. So it also involves a bunch of sales engineering, as well, plus a bunch of SDR behavior. So like you add all that up. And so now what you have to be doing is selling very large deals. So their pricing has to like, in order to get the technology into the organization, it, it requires all this expensive human. So then the pricing has to be, has to pay for all those expensive human. Like the software might be very cheap and, the, and there might be zero marginal costs associated with like serving another customer. There might actually not be server costs or whatever, but the reality is, is just in order to get that software into the organization, you have to pay for it. And so that's why I was saying like pricing can be related. Pricing can be driven not by costs of, of your software. And that's kind of the whole point of software entrepreneurship is 
software is kind of cheap or yeah, sorry, it's expensive to make once. It's pretty cheap to, to then. <laughs> to yeah. yeah. It's pretty cheap to scale, but the, in, the installation of it may be expensive. And this is actually where you can have sources of advantage of, of like, if your go to market is awesome, like a good example of this would be Qualtrics, right? So if, if obviously Qualtrics is just bought by SAP, but one of the things that's most amazing about Qualtrics is, is their sales organization. Um, their sales organization runs out of, I forget if it's Lehigh or Provo or what have you, but I mean, they, their go to market apparatus was as or more excellent than their, um, their initial engineering apparatus. And it actually was the engine on which the organization was built was because they were able to scale up their go to market on $1,500 ASP deals with like, you know, inexpensive sales reps in, in Provo or Lehigh or wherever it was. Um, and then what that did was that made it such that the, the business was able to, to create this engine, which then they went up market and started competing with like the medallias and what have you of the world. Um, but, but also what they were able to by, by virtue of the fact that their go to market was so efficient. Um, they actually, it actually impacted their pricing. Like they could underprice other people because they didn't need to charge as much in order to pay for a bunch of expensive salespeople who are only having five meetings a week because they were able to sell lower ASP deals over the phone with one or two meetings and their reps were having 25 meetings a week that actually allowed them to bring down their pricing which of course just hurt, help their win rates as compared to competitors. So anyway, the point is, is that like, but being awesome at go to market can actually be like a lever in, um, like in enterprise value creation, not just from a revenue acquisition standpoint, but from all sorts of like, it gives you optionality for all sorts of other great stuff. And having a good inside sales team to, to help accelerate that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like Keep if you cost down, yeah. If you could like, um, David Scott does a really good job of talking about this of like, you know, the, the orders of man. So David Scott is a partner at matrix. Um, he's, you know, he's kind of like the, pro- <laughs> he's like the gray haired professor of like SAS pretty much. Um, you should read his, so, um, his blog is called for entrepreneurs. I spoke at, he had a, a conference called zero to 100. There was, um, him, myself, Stephanie shots from Xamarin. Um, and then I forget the gentleman's name from, uh, from Zeus. Uh, but essentially like, uh, David Scott talks about this a lot about how like different, um, servicing models have different costs. And so outside an outside service model is 10 times as expensive as, as like a mid market inside service model. And so if you can figure out how you can sell something, with a different service model. So like an inside sale or maybe like a low touch, no touch, like sale, what you can do is like dramatically reduce the, uh, like the, the pricing associated with that and, and potentially service different, different markets. So one of the earliest examples he talked about there was, um, J boss. So J boss was, a you know, Java, uh, Java server or Java application server providers, open source. It was one of the earliest examples of a successful open source business model where, because J boss, like, you know, had this open source product, it drove like a bunch of lead gen. And so you did unlike, you know, web logic, which eventually was bought by Oracle that was reliant on, you know, super expensive outside sales reps who were going around, um, you know, selling, uh, go take, taking lots of CIOs out to dinner. 
uh, in order to sell proprietary um, WebLogic ser- uh, application servers to them. JBoss just had this like inbound like fire hose of leads. And so they like, they were able to just like service these organizations in a way like over the phone, eventually they got to an outside model, but like JBoss and the same is kind of true of like, you know, Autodesk versus parametric or what have you, where like essentially the go-to-market model changed as a result of using different go-to-market channels. Um, and it disrupted the prior kind of like the prior old guard. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, we're talking a lot about uh, GTM, a lot about go-to-market. A lot of people, a lot of founders are saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to have a sales team and da-da. that's my go-to-market. I'm just going to go outbound and start reaching. I mean, obviously that's bad, but what, what are the foundations of a good go-to-market strategy? Well, I mean, I, I think that it all, if you go back to that, that deck on uh, founder led maturity models, it all kind of stacks, right? So it all kind of starts with really, really good product research. Um, and so Eric Reese's lean startup and Steve blanks, um, startup owners manual kind of talk about this around customer development. There's a really good, uh, article on first round review called, uh, get in the van. It's by Michael Sippy. He was a head of product at Twitter. He's now the head of product at medium. Um, it just talks about, like you can't just start out and say, Hey, I have an idea. I'm just going to start building it. Right. Instead you have to, you know, you have to ask people, do you have this problem? You know, is it annoying? How do you solve it right now? Why are those, why are those current solutions unsatisfactory? You know, how, how, how big of a pain in the ass is this, et cetera. And then, and then propose your solution okay, cool. Here's this thing I'm thinking about, by the way, feel free to like shit all over it. It's okay. Like you won't hurt my feelings. In fact, it would be better. Um, and then what you want to understand is that first and foremost, that people actually have this problem that you're solving. Great. Then now we progress to MVP state where we want to, and then what you've done in that product research is you're actually figuring out like the personas and like what their pain points are. This is what product management is then you actually build things to solve those. You're, you prioritize those pain points, right? Start with the ones that are most, <laughs> most painful, um, yeah. highest willingness to pay, et cetera. Then you build functionality to like resolve those. And then we, now we move to product marketing land where essentially all we're doing is we're saying like, Hey, remember that pain point that you said that you had that was really sucky. We built this thing that solves it. And here's the value propositions associated with it. But as you can see, it's, it all links together, right? Like good product management that then drives good product development that then links to product marketing that refers back to that. And then that has to be packed like that product marketing and and messaging and packaging have to be coherent such that the people who we did this research with are like, yeah, you know what? That is that thing. Right. And then of course the other versions of those people who have never had that conversation are like, Oh yeah, I do have that problem. Just like, you know, these other people that you did research with. So that's like the foundation of a good go to market without that. I mean, you see this a lot historically, um, before kind of early stage startups kind of became more of a science and were kind of like more artistic and, and you saw a much higher failure rate, um, you know, just running out and being like, Hey, like we built this thing. Isn't it like rad, (laughs) you know, you should buy it as opposed to like, Hey, you've got this problem. We know that you have this, you, we know that you have this problem. We know that it's very expensive. We know that the current solutions are unsatisfactory for these reasons. Here's this thing that we built that solves this in a way that, that actually 
you know, resolves the issues and the shortfalls of, of the existing solutions. And here's the pricing associated with it, which obviously is a fantastic trade. Like you give us this amount of money, we give you five times the value back. If you have that going on, then all sorts of other great things kind of cascade from that. One, if you know who your personas are and what the, the characteristics of the organizations where those humans are at, look like, well, now we can actually do really good account identification. So you were kind of talking about like, you know, challenges associated with outbound. Outbound can actually be really fantastic if you do it right. So like, <laughs> that's I, the I, biggest I, challenge. Yeah. But like one of the biggest, one of the biggest challenges associated with outbound is just people going outbound, like you know, aimlessly, like, Hey, I've got this thing. You should care about it. As opposed to wh what outbound should be is there's this gentleman who's a product manager at uh, Wealthfront. His name's Tyler Hogue. Um, and uh, so he used to do, uh, he used to do sales and he and I were having this Twitter argument with like some founder who was like, Oh my God, you know, if you go outbound, like you should kill yourself. It's stupid. I was like, <laughs> well, there's actually like these huge multi-billion dollar companies and then built on that. So like, that's really shitty advice, dude. Um, yeah. And so Tyler had this really great metaphor, which was like, if you could identify proactively everybody who had a broken window, right. Um, you know, in the back of their house and you could go outbound to them and be like, Hey, I think you have a broken window and it probably sucks because like it's cold out and that cold air is getting in. And by the way, I, I happen to fix windows and it costs a hundred dollars. And you know, if you leave that for another two months, it's going to cost you $500 an extra heating expense or whatever, like that, that person's going to be pretty stoked on that. Like, Oh yeah. You know, I've been meaning to get around to that broken window. I haven't done it yet. So that's a very simple metaphor, but like, if we can, if we know the people who care about us, like care about our solution, what the problem is, if we are able to identify the external signifiers of that need. So a good example of that would be like with talent bin, our recruiting software company, like we knew you needed talent bin. It make talent bin was like, it's like LinkedIn recruiter for the entire internet. We, we crawled GitHub stack overflow meetup, you know, a hundred other sites created these composite profiles. It was primarily really helpful for recruiting software engineers that had not great LinkedIn profiles. Um, so we knew that if you had engineering hires on your job page, on your applicant tracking system, that you were a great fit for us. Right. And we knew that it was really annoying. And so what we were able to do is say, okay, let's identify all the organizations that have open engineering hires. Let's actually count how many open engineering hires they have. Cause if they have 30, it's better than if they have two. And then let's figure out who inside the organization, like if they have somebody in the organization that cares about that. So do they have recruiters in house? Okay. Let's identify that. So now we knew that talent bin was phenomenal for like, it was way better than LinkedIn recruiter for, um, engineering recruiting because we had more profiles because our profiles were richer. We had personal email addresses. We had email automation built in kind of like sales loft or outreach, but all this like fun jazz. Um, and so what we could do is we could reach out and be like, Hey, you have these roles on your, on your applicant tracking system. I bet if you're like most of these people, you probably try to reach out to these folks on LinkedIn and like nobody responds to you. Or if they do respond to you, they tell you to go pound sand and that kind of sucks. 
But the good news is, is that, you know, we've got this thing and it's going to make your life way easier. It's going to reduce the pain. So like you might be manually trying to find email addresses, right? Y'all don't worry. We've already programmatically identified those. You might be like manually sending these messages. Don't worry. We automated that. There's drip marketing, all this sort of stuff. It, it really like you should be spending your time closing candidates as opposed to doing all of this, you know, grunt work. Isn't that fantastic? And people loved it. Right. Yeah. But the only reason why we were able to do this is because we knew exactly what the problems were. We were able to identify. So you can go out and then you can start doing inbound stuff as well. But even your inbound is going to suck if it's not aligned to the problems that you're addressing. Like you can make all sorts of, you know, silly, whatever, like infographics, like, Oh, here's this like infographic. That's totally like, that's funny and viral, but totally not related to our value proposition. Like that's silly. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. and so all of this kind of stacks on having, you know, good product management that goes to good product development that goes to good product marketing that goes to good, you know, go to market of a, either an outbound or an inbound nature. I always tell people that, uh, all the founders that I'm working with are, or the first salespeople that when you, when you're going outbound, don't make it about you, make it about them and make it yeah. first to understand what pain points it is that you're solving. Once you understand what pain points you're solving, then you could write that in that message. Like you said, Hey, we know you got that broken window. It's getting cold, yada, yada. Hey, I happen to fix windows. Should we talk? <laughs> yeah, totally. And like, um, in, in the, the friends and family version of founding sales there, there's actually a chapter on that where I call it your sales narrative. Essentially it's just product marketing for dummies. Like first, <laughs> first you want to have, you want to have your sales narrative baked such that like, you know, the person who's consuming that is like, yeah, it is cold in here. And yeah, ga gas is expensive. And yeah, like, you know, my, my kids are cold and yeah, you know what? That does suck. Okay, cool. Yeah. You have my attention. Yeah, absolutely. Get, get them to speak, get them to like really process that they have that pain and under, get them to understand that they have that pain. It will make the sale so much easier. Yeah, totally. Good. Let's, uh, I want to talk about some of the companies that you've, that you've founded and that you've had, um, and what you've learned from there. So what I re really want to know is what's your biggest failure when it's come up to sales? What yeah. Has been your failure? yeah I, I think the biggest failure, that's actually pretty easy. Um, our failure was not the common failure. So I tell them our failure was not the common failure. The common failure in go to market is just like, you don't do it. Um, but in our case, we were kind of like, okay, well, we can embrace this. Um, our, our failure was actually one of, I guess you could call it premature scale almost a little bit, but in, in a, in a different kind of fashion. So early on, I mean, this was like 2011 or yeah, 2010, 2011, like I didn't really kind of know what I was doing at that point. And so I, I I'm kind of like a, a studious kind of person. And so what I did was I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to go and read about how to do this. And the problem was that there wasn't a lot of like information that was available at the time. This is actually why I ended up writing founding sales afterwards. But what I did was I indexed, uh, I, I read, um, predictable revenue by, um, by Aaron Ross and, um, Mary Lou. Oh gosh, I forgot her last name, but anyway, those two folks. And, um, and, uh, and so I was like, Oh, okay, cool. I can operationalize this. And so what we actually did was we ended up scaling up our go to market, um, in a way that was good from a top line standpoint, 
So we actually were closing lots of deals. Our account executives were fully fed. In fact, maybe overfed. That actually was something that then informed my my current company, my next company. So current company Atrium was, you know, it's it's a seller analytics solution that helps you really understand what's going on with the different reps and their quantity and quality of, of performance. So one of the problems that we were doing was we were just like we had our AEs were just having so many meetings and so many ops that they actually like weren't on, as on top of their ops as as they should have been, for instance. So like for, if you were only looking at customer facing meeting accounts, uh, or if you're only looking at opportunity ownership or pipeline ownership, you'd be like, Oh, this is great. But then if you, if you mixed in the fact that uh, if you looked at untouched opportunities or time between touches on opportunities or what have you, it was not as good, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they just had too much on their plate. And so that kind of helped me better. So like, that was a thing that, um, that, you know, for a bit, we, we didn't do as good a job because it, you know, what we were doing is we we're paying these SDRs to manufacture all these ops, but then they weren't being properly worked. So essentially we're paying $500, like imagine paying $500 for this thing. And then just putting it on the shelf and being like, <laughs> and, and not actually, we have so many leads. <laughs> yeah. And then, and like, and then not doing anything with it. Like, so that was yeah. kind of dumb. Or, and we were doing something where like, essentially the, the, the seller would like, all right, cool. Like, here's a demo. Cool. Are you going to buy? Okay. I'm going to forget about you. Um, and, and like, it, it's not that our sellers were, it's not, that they were being like, you know, uh, dumb or, or like, yeah, it's, it's not that like, I was just force feeding them. Right. Yeah. Like a bunch of things. So like they were over. And so that actually kind of helped me understand how to be, why, why it was so important to be good at like all parts of analytics. It can't just measure like, you know, it can't only just have one slice. And you see this a lot with organizations is, like, Oh, okay. I'm only going to pay attention to activity levels and SDRs. And moreover, I'm only going to pay attention to like aggregate levels of like activities. Well, if you only do that, like, how about this? It's better than nothing, but it's not, it's, it's not like what you want to be paying attention to is, you know, customer facing email behavior, customer facing calling behavior, customer facing, you know, social outreach. And then you want to be paying attention to, you know, response rates on all of that. And you want to be paying attention to number of contacts that they're engaging with per account and number of aggregate number of accounts that they're interacting with and time between those interactions and the connect rates and the response rates and all this sort of anyway. So like that was something where that was a big mistake. Another big mistake that we, we made was not, not validating that people were getting utility out of, um, out of the, the software. And so we, I mean, we did have a customer success function at Talentbin, um, but it was just one of the, the market was particularly hard because passive candidate recruiting requires a lot of labor. Um, and so just, you know, trying to get customers in order to like use the, use the offering such that they would drive utility out of it was, was a pretty heavy lift. And so what we were doing is we had scaled up our, our account executive and SDR function. And so we we're putting a bunch of customers on the board, but the customers weren't adopting and getting to success um, as, you know, as robustly or as like ubiquitously as we would have preferred. Um, and so that's actually something that we've resolved pretty heavily in my current company, Atrium, where, you know, we have a really heavy, customer success investment, all of our customer success people at Atrium are um, sales operations people because I mean, essentially Atrium is kind of like sales operations, sales strategy in software. But when you're early stage and your software is, you know, as like less developed. So in like an early 2018, Atrium then was, you know, not nearly as developed as Atrium is now. And so having really talented customer success as a backstop to kind of make up for product deficits is a very powerful thing. 
And then what ends up happening is like, you just put more and more of that, um, you know, customer success into the product, right? You automate more of it. The product gets better, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, back in early 2018, Atrium was really great at like, you know, having every single metric that you could possibly care about for your SDRs, your AEs or your AMs. But then you as a, as a person, as like a sales operations person would have to go and like, look at it or interpret the anomaly detection that was happening there. Now the software has gotten to the point where it does, you know, it does much higher nuanced anomaly detection. So it's only delivering to sales operations, sales managers, the insights about reps that they actually care about. So the signal to noise ratio has gone um, way up. But back in 2018, the signal to noise ratio was maybe a little like crappier. And so that's why we, we had a pretty heavy investment in our customer success apparatus so that they could help like backstop the product and administer it such that those people would get utility and be like, yeah, this is awesome. And I totally understand how, where the shortfalls are, but like, I get that you're backing it up. Karen and Betsy, those are our, our CS folks. Uh, they're fantastic. Um, I get where you're and but like, yeah, you're totally backing up and wow, this is getting better over time. And then we're telling you all about this information and it's feeding back into product management. So those are, I mean, those are kind of the two biggest failures that I think that we did was like the, the challenge associated with like, like partial instrumentation and having blind spots like, Oh, isn't this great? Everyone's so busy <laughs> and they're ignoring their pipeline. Right. Like yeah. that, that really helped me understand that it's both like a quantity and a quantity game or quantity and a quality game for AE and SDR instrumentation. And then from, from a CS standpoint, it's really making sure that people are getting to utility and our high utilization, high NPS, you know, expanding ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera, before you go and scale. Cause if you then scale up, say you have 10 account executives that are popping out five customers a month at 10 K each, but then those folks are just going to turn in 12 months. It's not great. Yeah. I, I was at a company, uh, as the only salesperson before oh. and they were, they were running, bringing in the marketing was doing a terrific job, bringing in leads, yep. 2000, 2000 leads a month almost. And you're just I'm, drowning I, and I'm <laughs> drowning and I'm closing deals. I'm doing a terrific job, but it's like, well, first of all, I'm, I'm not actually being a salesperson. I'm just more being an order taker, even though it's a high value sale, but the, the company feels like, Hey, we're doing something good. No, like most of these people are unqualified and I can't actually find the people, the big ones. I can't find the big fish. I could only find, I'm only have time to take the right. people throwing money at us. <laughs> so right. it's like the, the, yes, it's, it's, it's like, you know, please stop throwing, um, hay at me. I'm trying to find the needles here and you keep dumping more, more hay on me. Exactly. But, yeah. And I think that that's, that kind of goes to, you know, premature scale where, what in that case, okay, why were they, you know, why were they driving that many leads? Well, they were probably not being super targeted with their marketing or what have you. And there were probably a couple of things that could be done there, like maybe better qualification on the inbound. Maybe the form has some more kind of qualification criteria. They could do better tailoring and targeting on the Facebook ads or the, you know, the, the LinkedIn ads or the Google ads or, or what have you. Um, and, and so like, that's the sort of thing that you would want to figure out with like only one rep before you like totally like take it up <laughs> you know, yeah. and spend a ton of money on things. Yeah. So that's where, I mean, uh, like you were saying is document everything, track everything yeah. and, and look, and look at those numbers are so important. And then the second thing you were, you were kind of focusing on is uh, I heard another, uh, I think it was another podcast interview with you, uh, mm -hmm. where you're saying your, your second 
error that you made of selling to everybody, even if they didn't oh. need, cost you a delay in your Series A? Yeah, you know what? That th- thanks, Adam. That's yeah, totally. <laughs> it, it, it's you know what it is though. It's it's customer success, but customer success problems as a result of of like bad um, ideal customer profile, right? Yeah. Um, or sorry. Yeah. I mean, bad. Yeah. So like, remember how I was saying earlier, when, when we were thinking about outbound at talent bin, we real we knew that you had to have at least three open engineering roles and you needed to have a recruiter in house. It couldn't be an HR generalist. Like HR people are fantastic, but they have just too much stuff on their plate in order to do passive candidate recruiting. So early on, what we had is like, you know, we'd have these VPs of, of engineering, and they'd go to like some conference and they'd see like some person sitting on stage and be like, Oh yeah, you should spend all your time recruiting, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, mm, okay, cool. He's on stage. I should probably listen to him. And then what would happen is like, but it was bullshit. And, and so what you would have is these, these VPs of engineering or like, you know, head of HR would come inbound, but they didn't have time to do passive candidate recruiting. Right. And so what we were doing rather than like qualifying them out and be like, look, I can take your money, but you're not going to get utility because you're never going to use it. You're just going to be mad. You're going to you know, talk crap on us to everybody else, et cetera, et cetera. In our case, we were like, Hey, this person wants to pay us. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Money. <laughs> yeah, neat. Yay. Um, and, and I think there's another component to that where, you know, maybe what you can do and maybe it's not, it, it's probably not the, like the most moral thing in the world. Like if somebody has that, if somebody wants to t- take a shot at it, then you can say like, okay, cool. Well, I'll sell this to you, but like, let's just caveat this. And then, you know, from a metrical standpoint, what you can potentially do is tag them in your CRM as like non ICP versus ICP. Like, Hey, these people are essentially giving us money to like fund our engineering with, and that's cool. Like maybe they're just doing this as a vanity thing. Um, but they're not ICP because what you don't want is you don't want those churn metrics to, to impact your ability to fundraise. Um, generally speaking though, like just from a moral standpoint and also just like, you know, uh, being like a good participant in the world, like a good SaaS and like early stage participant in the world, you really should only sell things to people that, that they're going to get utility out of. And that's why this is one of the things that we talk about a lot in modern sales is people have all these misconceptions around what sales is about. Like sales is about identifying pain in the world and then fitting a solution that works to that pain right? To, to, like our point about, um, about windows, right. And uh, about broken windows. And if, if you're, I was talking with this about somebody the other day, like the historical joke about like, Oh, that person could sell snow to Eskimos. Right. Like if you sell snow to Eskimos, you're kind of an asshole, right? Like <laughs> they should be spending their, like they should be, they're surrounded by snow. They should be spending their money on something else. Like, and all you're going to do is like mess it up for the person who comes after. And it's like, Hey, I'm a salesperson. I'm here to, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to sell you a snowmobile or I'm here to, I'm here to sell you, you know, something like a, a you know, a cool thing that like makes it easier for you to fish or yeah. like hunt seals or whatever. And then that person is get that the Eskimo in this, in this ridiculous metaphor, um, is going to be like, Oh, it's one of these salespeople. They're terrible. They yeah. lie. Right. And, and, and that, that just messes it up for everybody. So really what you want to do is if you just want like a salesperson is a consultant, a modern salesperson is a, like a high acumen, high subject matter expertise consultant who happens to have a predilection 
a preference for one type of solution, the one they yeah. sell. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, what is one of your biggest, what is the biggest challenge you're facing now with your current company as it comes to sales? Um, just so Atrium is at the point, we're at the, 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 the stage where we're um, abstracting out our go-to-market. So, you know, I've sold a few dozen customers. Um, you know, the customers are like, you know, wildly successful, high, high NPS, high, uh, you know, high, re all referenceable, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have, I mean, our customers are fantastic. It's like the, the biggest kind of group of like sales operations and sales leadership nerds. Um, they're super delightful. And so now what I have to do is just clone me out. And so what I'm doing is hiring a number of account executives right now to, to take the sales motion that I've developed and collateralize, like I have a ton of materials and what have you, because, you know, kind of, that's what I do. I'm a product marketer by background, but it's still a lot of labor to, to, hire and then like pour that information into the brain of new account executives. So, I mean, it's, it's not like it's an insurmountable challenge. It's just work, which is fine. And then like, I know how to do the work, um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's still a lot of work. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good problem to be having though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, how do I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of a champagne problem where, and this is why when we talk with account executives, they really enjoy selling atrium because they're like, Oh yeah, I totally get this. This is the stuff that like my managers have been doing with me forever. And, and moreover selling this, you know, I am a sales strategy advisor when I sell this, this, this analytic solution. Um, and it's actually training me to be a better sales strategist and it's, it's preparing me to be a better, better sales manager. So like, you know, our conversion rates on sales hiring are, are very high because, and you know, the product's great. It's super easy. And, um, it's, you know, all the customers are referenceable and people are really stoked. It's still just like a ton of labor training humans, right? <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Pete, uh, as it, it typically happens on this show is that I've got way more questions and I want to keep diving deeper, but uh, we're good. We're getting uh, low on time, but so I really appreciate uh, you coming with us today. Super fun. Yeah. Is there a way for people to reach out to you or find out about your, your current company and, and what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm super easy to find on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm, I think I'm the only Peter Kazanji in the world or at least in the United States. So just Google me and it goes right to the, the relevant links. Um, yeah, if you're in sales operations or sales leadership and you have, you know, north of five or 10, um, SDRs plus AEs, you should check out atriumhq.com. It's the, the most advanced continuously monitored, um, performance analytics solution for reps. It's pretty awesome stuff. It's kind of like, you know, an army of sales operations analysts, uh, in software. Uh, so you can check that out as well. But, um, but yeah, importantly from a, from a tactical standpoint, folks should check out the materials that Adam's going to link to in the notes, because, you know, it's just a bunch of materials that we've been talking about and can help you, um, you know, help you get better at what it is that you're doing. There's an overview on modern sales as well. Yeah. Have something tangible. Great. Pete, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. All right, Pete, let's finish things off for the final five. Okay. What, what is your favorite sales or leadership book? 
Um, favorite sales or leadership book, uh, probably founding sales, which is the book that I wrote, but that doesn't really, <laughs> that doesn't really, <laughs> that doesn't really count. That's more for like, that's for founders. Um, I think that one's for founders, but I think the one that I really love and I buy copies of for people all the time is, um, uh, cracking the sales management code by, um, Jason Jordan, I want to say is, is the gentleman's name. Uh, it's like a really great, it's perfect for sales managers. So it's like the next step founding sales is for like founders and first time sellers. Um, cracking the sales management code is for people who are like, you know, trying to hone their manager craft and first time managers. It's fantastic. Excellent. Do you have somebody that you follow, uh, or read for sales and leadership ideas? I, I mentioned him, uh, earlier in the podcast, but, uh, Jeremy Donovan who leads sales strategy and is the GM of the New York office for sales loft is, a is a phenomenal, uh, sales strategy thinker. Um, he's probably the, the most voluminous participant on modern sales. And, uh, his blog is called selling Sherpa.com. But, um, most, most of his like amazing content writing happens on modern sales or the sales lot blog, but he's, he's super fantastic. Excellent. Are you available 24 seven or do you have uh, strict time boundaries? I'm yeah, I'm from an email stand. Like I probably have when I'm not doing meetings like this. Um, I have, you know, probably like a 30 minute email SLA. So I'm kind of always on. <laughs> I think that's really important, uh, on the sales aspect, especially, uh, to, to have that SLA for sales, a self-imposed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like if a, if a prospect shows up and emails you at Friday at 9 PM saying like, Hey, I want a contract, like waiting till Monday is not a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And to, unfortunately, so many salespeople will just be like, all right, I'll, I'll wait till Monday. <laughs> get, the, get, get the signature on the contract <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I know this next question is, is kind of setting you, setting you up for some shameless self-promotion, but what is your favorite tool used for sales? Um, (laughs) (laughs) well, we won't, we won't talk about sales analytics and atriumhq.com. Um, but I think probably the thing that I'm, the thing that I'm most in love with right now is, uh, Sendoso. So Sendoso is a, uh, it's a, a software that allows you to programmatically send like offline materials. So like marketing collateral, like whether it's swag, like phone chargers or, you know, um, webcam covers or fill in the blank. Um, it hooks into your CRM system. It hooks into your marketing automation system. So the sort of things that like we've tried to do historically with swag, like t-shirts or, you know, um, cardstock collateral or whatever, there was always like a real big pain in the butt to like send out to people. Now you can just send things so easy. And because like, I'm a big marketing collateral man creator. Cause like, I just create lots of content and it's like super useful. I'm like, now I can just programmatically send that, like mail that stuff off to people. So it's hanging out in their cubicles or up on their walls or, or whatever. Like we use it for lead gen. We use it for customer success. We use it for middle of funnel. Yeah. It's, it's like super awesome. Uh, it's called Sendoso. Sendoso. That's terrific. I never heard of that one. Yeah. All right. Final question. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and sales leaders out there? Um, we'll, we'll talk with the, we'll, we'll speak to the founders primarily. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice I would say is just embrace, go to market. Don't be afraid of it. 
uh, there's a lot of people who love to sit up on stage and tell you that it's like, it's magical. And like, you know, you have to pay them lots of money in order to consult with you or, or what have you, but it's just the craft that needs to be learned. There's materials out there that you can use to learn it, whether it's like, you know, my book or, or materials from other people, you just have to make the personal commitment that you're going to get good at it. Like, I'm going to get good at this. I'm going to do the pushups and, and I can do this. That's kind of like the high order bit. And then once, once you make that commitment, then there's just, you know, it's just a question of, of learning and doing the repetitions, but surmounting the like skepticism around go to market, I think is kind of the biggest thing with respect to, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that trips founders up. Great. Pete, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. This is fantastic. I appreciate it. Thank you.